Welcome to the show today, Kendra Piros, a lifestyle corporate photographer out of Hamilton, Ontario. Kendra, thanks for coming in and being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful opportunity. So you are a lifestyle and corporate photographer out of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. What kind of does that look like? I was super lucky for many years to just work freelance um, and kind of roll the artist um, jaunt for a while. And through the pandemic, as I'm sure happened to many other artists and photographers, um, not only did the work obviously dry up, but in Canada um, and Ontario specifically, it was actually illegal to shoot. Um, so I definitely hung out for a little while, so you know, took uh, took the temperature of the world. But eventually, I just needed to like work again. I needed to spiritually, emotionally, physically, and financially like you know, work my trade. And mm -hmm. because of COVID, there was like a mass exodus of people leaving the hospitals. So there was the opportunity to work in a corporate environment in um, the medical field to kind of transition my freelance skills into day-to-day um, into -day kind of work. So that's how I ended up at the hospital. When you said there's a lot of people leaving the hospitals, do you mean like staff or patients or how does... Um, because of the nature of our work, we work in like surgeries in all of the units. Okay. So sometimes those units are like baby nursery units and you get to take photos of um, babies and you know, those wonderful types of milestones. Mm -hmm. Surgeries are great because you get to see the guts and the gore um, and document for educational purposes. But it was like the COVID units and going in on to the units that a lot of people found risky um, and yeah. some people, photographers and videographers just like weren't comfortable with. So that left some positions open for me, which I, uh, stupidly decided to pursue and <laughs> I don't know if I say stupidly I, I will say it's uh you know I think it's pretty bold uh not because it's COVID or anything but just being at a hospital uh in, in in a former life I did hospital security and someone told me that you know when you're at the hospital you know you're always meeting people that are having their worst day you're never at the, unless you're having a baby maybe other than that you're at a hospital it's like the worst day of your life and you really don't want to be there uh, and to kind of be there and, and capture that in its essence. What, what's that experience like for you kind of on the day-to-day? -day? Um, it's cool because you really get to like live and breathe the documentary aspect of things. As someone who also shoots like weddings and other happy milestones, there's obviously like a stark contrast between photographing the best day of someone's life versus, you know, being around them, creating content on, like you said, like potentially the worst days of someone's lives. Um, so I think that more in the hospital situation, you know, I document, I'm an observer, you know, I'm present with them, but I'm not like sharing space with these people um, in the same way that you would doing other more like creative and interactive work, either mm -hmm. just like in fashion or, you know, like in weddings, you know, you want to, you want to give people that space, I think, and, and not intrude with the camera because the camera being there already is kind of intrusive, um, yeah. you know, for Does some it people. Does this type of photography have uh, an emotional impact on you? Um, or is it just kind of, are you, are, does that, because you're behind the lens, is that, are you able to separate yourself from that? Or do you, like, are you able to compartmentalize or does that kind of affect you? Sometimes it's easy to compartmentalize, right? We all know we have a job to do. We collect our emotions. We put on our best face and, you know, we, we show up to do the job that we've been hired to do and do it to the best of our abilities. But especially during COVID, you do get caught up in the motion, um, in the emotion of everything. There's a lot of extra tensions. You know, people are concerned about safety. They're concerned about protocols. Um, and 
you want to be able to like jump in and get the moment, especially when I'm working in like the emergency department or the ICU, right? You feel like you are more of like a war photographer. So the tension can kind of keep you in line emotionally. Mm -hmm. But there was one instance that I um, got to shoot a woman who was saying goodbye to her husband, potentially for the last time on an iPad. And it was so beautiful to see that, you know, this technology in the iPad was allowing this patient to still share a connection with her husband, even though COVID didn't allow him to be physically like present in the room. But also obviously knowing that, you know, she's going onto a CPAP machine, she may never actually be able to potentially recover from, you know, COVID and the other comorbidities that she had. It, it definitely stayed with me for days. You know, it was a beautiful moment to capture, but knowing that I also could have heard her voice for the last time, I sat with me a little bit. It's, um, I know the feeling of shooting family photos is, uh, you know, they have your, the photo of them, that memory they put up on the wall that you were able to kind of be a part of their family a little bit in a way. So I'd imagine there's a, a similar, maybe a greater feeling because of the emotions that are attached to what you're just talking about, where you are documenting, you know, the final moments of someone's life. Maybe you were the last one you hear her voice or, Mm-hmm. But there it is. There's that memory, and that person's gone now. But you've captured that, and and it, it's there, and it's there forever. That I think is one of the greatest gifts of of what we do, right? Like you said, we do create you know art for people's walls at at home. But oftentimes, as photographers, we don't realize that we're taking the last pictures of families. The last mm-hmm. you know picture of someone at a wedding might turn up on an obituary as like morbid as that sounds. A couple months later, I've had the the uh, the emails come through where people say, you know, do you have more content from this person from this event? You know, do you remember shooting this conference? You know, this person has now passed. So in the moment, we don't always appreciate like the weight, I think, of of what we do when we're capturing someone's image. Yeah, no, absolutely. When you're in the hospitals, did you have a difficult time navigating all those dancing nurses? <laughs> <laughs> um, at first, I definitely, in surgery, uh, you know, was being extra mindful. You know, I, I have a buffet body. I am not, like, the smallest person. So I physically also am aware of, like, the actual space I'm taking up and learning <laughs> where to stand in surgery so that you can get the best shots but also, like, not piss off the surgeons um, is really important. And the nurses and the, the doctors, are, most of the time pretty accommodating they are not excited to you know always be captured yeah they they have a serious job to do and they're there to to do it but i I haven't i haven't had any ridiculous problems the dance continues (laughs) how much of what you do is in that setting is dependent on your relationship with the doctors and the nurses at least half establishing you know, the vibes of any shoot is super important, right? We often discount our personalities, I think, as as photographers and just artists in general. And that can be a big asset to making connections, making people feel comfortable, making you, the artist, more present than the camera. I think that's a super important hurdle um, for a lot of people and something that I'm always keeping in mind because you want your camera and your gear to be a tool to you. You don't want it to be a barrier. So on that note, um, I don't want to call it street photography, but it's essentially the same where you're going in and documenting something. You're not creating a moment, you're capturing a moment. Yeah. And, um, you know, I guess people are in varying degrees of awareness of whether or not they're having a photo taken of them. <clears throat> but 
there's a rise in cell phone photography, obviously, because cell phones are getting so much better now. They're competing with the lower end of the DSLR market. But also because you have a phone and everybody has a phone, it's not conspicuous. Nobody seems to mind if you have your phone up. But a camera, especially a professional-looking camera, draws a lot of attention. So when you're in the hospital, what kind of setup are you using? Um, we normally just go around with like a single body, right? It's not like when you're shooting a large corporate event or a wedding, you know, and you are juggling a harness and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm super lucky to also be able to shoot video. So sometimes we work with a couple lights, a teleprompter, but we do try and keep it as minimum as possible because we are physically moving around the hospital all the time. So you have to be like carrying that setup and making sure that, um, you're keeping to everyone's agenda in the hospital, like time is money and also you're working with people that are literally saving lives so for them you know stopping for a headshot doing uh, a video that explains something you know isn't always like the top of their priority list so you want to make sure that you are like as expedient as possible so i find you uh, <coughs> like two aperture lights is common with our team um we were on um the marks for a really long time um, with Canon and we're still shooting Canon. Um, but now we are using the, um, the R cinema live, which is mm. really fun. I also shoot mirrorless in my, um, day-to-day -day life now as well. So it's, it's nice to have some cohesion between the corporate world and then my, my own setup. For the style of photography that you do, what's your favorite, uh, what's your favorite setup? If you were to kind of have your dream set up every time. I always have a 50, like I never leave the house. I'm on the 50 right now. <laughs> <laughs> without my 50. They're like, <laughs> mid thirties art lenses are really popular. And I know that people kind of like swear by, um, I swear by some other like portrait style lenses, but I have found the most versatility and the best results with my 50. And I have two of them that I keep on two exact setups at all times, like just in case there's technical errors. Um, I generally only try to stick to primes. Nice. There's, yeah, there's the, uh, I'm, I'm shooting, we're recording on an R6 right now and with the 518 on it. So not mm -hmm. like the expensive 1.21, but I can imagine like you could, you could, for the price of one 50 millimeter 1.2, you could probably get three or four yeah. <laughs> or, or more actually probably way more. You could probably carry like half a dozen of, uh, the 518. So yeah, that'd be a good lens to have a backup of for sure. And so I think versatile. I'm actually using the 1.4 from the DSLR <laughs> line with an adapter because they were so expensive and I didn't want to just, you know, throw away thousands and thousands of dollars worth of glass yeah. that I started with the adapter and I um, basically just like kept with it for the fifties. The advantage to like working with gear that you, um, you already love is that you know what to expect and you know, it's familiar. It's in the muscle memory. So I'll continue to, uh, step out in the zoom land for, you know, lots of events and that kind of stuff. But I always go home to the 50. She's my girl. <laughs> so a philosophical question then photography, uh, how important is gear in terms of being competitive in your market in Hamilton, Ontario? Um, I, it's not about having like the newest gear. It's about getting the best out of the gear that you have. Mm. Uh, I'll put. Like you had mentioned before, like cell phones are ridiculous. Now you can shoot in raw, on your cell phone, right, and produce images that you can potentially blow up to the size of a billboard. I followed a couple artists that are shooting and editing music videos um, and gorgeous, you know, flat lays for print and fashion on their cell phones, right? So if you really know 
either the vision that you have and what you want to get, or you really know, you know, the technical side of the gear, you can still get amazing, amazing shots. I do think that there's like a, a gap in the early DSLRs mm. that you can see in photos um, because things are so much flatter. There's so much more compression. Like it's just not, not the same as like the marks onwards, but if, if you're willing to put the time in and practice and really get to know the gear that you have, you can be competitive with anything, right? At the end of the day, we're artists. And if you are able to find a market and, you know, position yourself in, in your art or, you know, your skills as a photographer in some way, they'll, they'll always be work for you. That's key. You just said position yourself. Um, there's an old marketing book called Positioning. I can't remember who the author was. Have you read that one by chance? No, I just liked how like apropos it was. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, it talks about, they talk about one concept in there, which is, uh, well, positioning yourself, occupying a niche. Uh, they are using an example of the rental car market. They're talking about budget and, or was it Hertz? I think it was Hertz and Avis. And uh, Hertz was like the number one car rental company all across America. And Avis was having was the second um, highest grossing car rental company. And so Avis's marketing team came up with this line that Avis, uh, we're number two, we try harder. And that, they just, they owned it. They owned that, that position and, and kind of leveraged that to their advantage. So yeah, I, I like what you say, kind of picking up a position or, or finding a gap maybe in the market and uh, going full bore and occupying that, uh, occupying that niche. That's yeah. a good advice, Kendra. <laughs> Editing style is super important, right? Positioning, deciding, you know, what do you want to work with food? Do you want to work with people? Mm. You know, are you a car guy? You know, what is it that you're passionate about? You know, what is it that you want to see more of, right? That's what you should be creating. That's what you should be sharing with the world. There's uh, two fields of thought when it comes to professional photographers. Some people run for the money, right? They, they just, you know, want to fill the bank account and other people are, you know, more creators and are, looking to, you know, either create a style, you know, create, um, create art, share, share things with their following that have their mark on it. And I think it's really cool when you can look at someone's work and know exactly who shot it. Who are some of your favorite photographers that, uh, that you'd say you identify with their style or, or that inspired you to, to shoot the way you do? Um, there is one guy called Richard Martin, who style is nothing at all like mine. And <laughs> The reason that I'm so attracted to it is because there is almost like unrecognizable pieces of the world shot in abstract. Um, and mm. I really appreciate how you can turn almost anything into art if you're able to carefully, you know, set your framing and set your set your eye to it. So Richard Martin, for sure, I definitely want to continue to be like a little bit more artistic as I get older. Sometimes I get trapped in the the corporate world and the freelance hustle and, you know, for, forget to create just to create. So, mm. no, I noticed, um, <clears throat> um, whether I'm shooting, uh, landscapes or people or animals or weddings or food or whatever it is that I happen yeah. to be doing, I'm always shooting it kind of in the style of, not intentionally even, but just kind of in a portrait style. Yeah. Like even if it's a picture of a forest or something, it's, it's almost like a portrait of the forest. But do you find that in yourself as well, that you, you, you're you a portrait photographer, you're a whatever photographer, and you can be having an eclectic, uh, eclectic portfolio, but it's all shot kind of like a genre? 
I have two types of shooting that I find myself doing. I was a photojournalist for many years before doing uh, my own stuff. And there are certain rules in photojournalism about like tilting photos, making eye contact with the camera, making sure like the balls in the shot, if it's sports um, that are like ingrained in my muscle memory, I guess, like as, as a shooter. So when I'm shooting documentary stuff, you are an observer. And I find that those shots tend to be wider with a little bit less depth, a little bit less texture. And then when I live more in the freelance world, much more portrait. You know, that's when the the 50 never leaves my side kind of thing. And I definitely consider myself to be a portrait photographer. But because of the photojournalism background, you know, that documentary will, will always sneak in, even if I am trying not to let it. <laughs> how, um, how did you, how did you actually kind of make your journey into photography? Was it, was it kind of like someone about your camera when you were a kid or did you stumble upon it in your adulthood? Like how did that evolution happen? Definitely adulthood. I went to school for theater. I loved working in Canadian theater. It was like, you know, an absolute privilege. I'm a musician by trade and I wanted to go continue to study music. The program that I had chosen was music and digital media. I was like, great, this is awesome. I'd already been to university. I was a little bit older. I wanted to kind of like catch up on all of the tech that I'd lost for sound recording and all that kind of stuff when, you know, I was buried in the books the last couple of years. What I didn't know was that you had your music major, but you also had to pick a tech major. And well, like, you did I, do a double major. Okay. Yeah, it, was, it was just part of the program that you studied both music and digital media. And originally when I had chosen the program, I was under the impression that it was mostly music supported by digital media. Whereas the both like production, um, editing, and then publishing side of actual digital media was a huge part of what they were teaching. So all of these young kids, which were like five years younger than myself at the time, had basically, you know, gone through high school living with tech, right? They all had cell phones. They had tech in their classes that were along the DSLR lines. When I was in high school, you know, we people were just starting to get cell phones. We had a photography class, but it was a dark room, you know, so there it was just a totally different experience. And like, I was behind. like a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, no, legitimately, like I had a gray hair. I pretty much felt like <laughs> all of these young kids seem to be so fluent in the techno technology languages that I was legitimately panicking. And in my first week, we had a photography class and we had to buy a DSLR to be part of the program. I was like fumbling with the box. I didn't know how to attach the lens to the body properly. You know, the, the cover of the battery like wasn't popping in right. It was an absolute disaster. Like I was sweaty and nervous and I absolutely fell in love with my camera from that day on. And what I thought was going to be one of the greatest challenges of learning ended up becoming like one of the greatest passions in my life. So it was Amazing. a big accident. <laughs> and I... Loved working in music as well. But as you can imagine, you know, theater and music don't bring home a lot of money all of the time. <laughs> and now that I had some new photography skills, I was trying to convert that into mm. more um, media and photojournalism. And so I worked, I uh, worked for about six years as a photojournalist for local papers, daily papers, student papers, you name it. If they were printing it, you know, I was, I was there. And eventually I started to see a change in media. One of the biggest deals for me was going to 
work one day at a huge daily newspaper and I picked up the paper and we had sold above the fold. The entire front page was an ad. Oh. <laughs> and it really hit me that this wasn't true journalism anymore. Mm. There is like an inherent promise when you pick up a paper, you know, that the front page is important news. We know that it's an archetype for a reason, a reason. And the viewer, the reader, when they pick up that paper, that front headline, you know, it's like the best headline. It's the juiciest story, you know, the biggest, the biggest deal, either in local or national or international news. And we had sold that space. So to me, there was like an ethical issue there because it wasn't news, right? That was an ad. Mm. Well, a lot can be said about that, I'm sure. You know, it was the wink from the world, you know, that uh, that needed uh, needed to happen for me so that I could, you know, as an artist, find something that I found or I felt was, you know, worth spending my life developing. Yeah. Um, and because I had made kind of like a home for myself um, in that city, the city was Kingston, Ontario. I had gone to university there. I also mentioned I went to college there played music there for years. So, the, you know, for 10 years, like this place was my home. Um, and that's when I decided, you know, to, to kind of branch out on my own and dove in, you know, kind of into the freelance world, um, just kind of with the connections that I, I'd made along the way. So it, it worked out well until the pandemic, but I'm happy that I've been exposed, pun intended, to uh, <laughs> so many different fields. You know, if you, uh, if you have the skills and the willingness to be flexible, you can you can do anything. What uh, what brought you to Hamilton from all the way from Kingston? Was you, did you like live here, just go to school there, and come back? Like how did yeah. that? You know, it was like the furthest university down the highway that I didn't have to <laughs> really leave for. And I grew up in a really rural situation, um, in a beautiful beautiful home with my lovely family. But when I was eighteen, I like could not get as far away as possible kind of thing in a quick enough time. So I moved from Hamilton to Kingston, chilled there for 10 years, you know, made a, an adolescent life for myself. And then I followed a boy back to the GTA in Ontario um, because our parents pretty much live like 40 minutes away from each other. Mm. We now live in uh, Burlington, which is right in the middle um, of our parents. So, so yeah, that's, that's how I uh, made my way back here. So sometimes following a boy can work out. <laughs> sometimes, As, sometimes. <laughs> for the record, I still really miss Kingston, and it's beautiful. <laughs> and one day I hope to live there. But I also would never have had the opportunity to expand into other styles of photography um, if I, if I didn't make that move. I also became a drone pilot. Um, oh, cool. Have been able to you know really invest in myself and in my business, and I don't think I would have done that if I you know hadn't been pushed to move and kind of like reestablish myself. So. How much does uh, being a drone pilot and doing drone, I guess, uh, photo video, how much does that separate you from the people around you that I guess, I guess you're competing with? There's a, there's a, a lot of, there's a lot of pie for everyone to have a slice, but uh, how does, how does being a drone pilot set you apart? Um, it's great because lots of people want it for video. You know, corporate tours want shots. If you are, you know, working with larger businesses, having the ability to, you know, actually be licensed. Um, and have professional gear is super important. People love drone stuff. They get really excited about it. It's like a toy, right? They they want to look at it. They want to talk about it. They want to look at the shots. So people definitely get excited about the drone stuff. It is getting really popular though. Um, you know, you can get a, a drone license really cheap in Ontario. There's also um, drones that are like 
one gram under the limit um, if you don't want to go the licensing route and you just kind of want to try and learn. So it's um, it's definitely a good skill to have. Anyone playing video games growing up would probably be really good at it. I think uh, the kids that were yelled at for playing too many video games and first-person shooters, you know, and were told they would never make anything with that, you know, there's great opportunities for them to be professional drone pilots. <laughs> they could prove some awesome. people wrong. Now you're uh, you're in you're in Hamilton now. Yeah. And uh, Hamilton, actually, I don't know if you know this. You probably do, uh, being a photographer. That uh, is actually the waterfall capital of the world. Yeah. Um, there's more water, albeit not like giant Niagara Falls style or like Argentinian Falls, but there's number wise <laughs> more more um, yeah more waterfalls in Hamilton than pretty much anywhere else. And uh, have you have you gone on little excursions to find these waterfalls? Oh yeah, they're great. You basically can pick a waterfall and go for a hike. They're great for lifestyle shoots. Very romantic. One of the shots that I sent you um, yeah, has yeah. one of the Hamilton waterfalls in it. Actually, it's uh, called Sherman Falls. You can see it there in the background. I am included that shot today because I think that um, lifestyle work gets a lot of flack. You know, when I'm working on larger corporate shoots, when I'm working in fashion, you know, there's like this like edge of being in the upper echelons that, you know, people try to like hold themselves and people really look down on on the lifestyle stuff. I literally so just have this photo like at random yeah. <laughs> in because I wanted to represent for the milestones and the lifestyle stuff because I think it gets a lot of shade. And like we said before, you know, you're taking pictures of people that, you know, could be passing away you might never have, you know, these moments again. And I think it's important that we, you know, save space for, for that. So was this, uh, this was an organized shoot. Uh, you said you, you shot this, was it like you saw it happening and you shot it or this was like a um, planned shoot? This was, a this was a, an engagement shoot. I was doing a nice. bunch of um, shots with, um, shots with this couple. They're getting married in a, in a couple months in March. Um, so we'll be back at their wedding, but the, um, the wedding in, family lifestyle industry. I do a lot of boudoir work as well. Brings you into, you know, new people, new cultures, new foods, new, new experiences. And I think that's really valuable for us as artists as well. Um, I love, you know, shooting animals, shooting wildlife, doing the, the landscape and travel photography, but the moments that you share and the people that you meet um, while doing just freelance stuff, I think um, is really important too. That feeds a different part of our soul. It does. I remember one of my favorite things as a kid was uh, it feels like it was maybe monthly that we'd have like a family slideshow and they'd get like the slide projector out, put the screen up and like we would sit there and eat our popcorn and like go through the whole family album. And, uh, you know, now you could do that, I guess, cast it to your Chromecast and do, like, <laughs> the slideshow on the TV. But uh, family photos, I think, are so important. And even though the photos we take of these families or weddings or whatever may not be historically significant. They're not some famous politician or actor or athlete, but to the people that have those photos, they're yeah. the most important people in their life. And it's such an honor to, uh, you know, to be a part of that. I think it's, um, it's an absolute privilege to be allowed into people's intimate lives and to tell their story. I've had the opportunity to shoot some huge celebs like Ed Sheeran and uh, Seinfeld. And at the end of the day, those are awesome marks for my career. You know, they go on my resume, but those aren't the stories that I'm telling, you know, when people are asking me, you know, what it is that I love about being a photographer and, you know, what it is about, you know, my drive or that, you know, that keeps you married to this industry. So it's uh, important. Today's episode is brought to you by Prairie View Photo Tours. 
Prairie View Photo Tours invites photographers of all levels to book their all-inclusive, authentic Alberta adventure at pvphototours.com. So you um, you submitted five photos. I asked for five photos. You submit that we can kind of chat about five photos that you. I said favorite photos. So favorite could mean a whole lot of different things to you. Uh, we've just seen the one of them, which was that uh, engagement shoot by Sherman Falls. Um, have you? By the way, just before we continue, have you ever been to Two's Falls? Two's Falls, yeah. That's yeah. so funny. Have you, did yeah. you go hiking there? Uh, I well, yeah. I've always I was always at the top, so I, I used to live there. I live in Alberta now. Yeah, I was like, there. how this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I used to li live in Waterdown, actually. So just outside of there, like Ooh. five minute, ten minute drive maybe from Two's Falls. And before I moved, I really, really wanted to shoot at the base of the falls. So I found a model in Toronto. We, I've never been there before. I was like, I should have done that walk before. So I knew the path, but she went a little adventure with me. It was like Indiana Jones, like wading waist deep through the, through the little um, creek there and, and the kind of up and down the hit muddy hills. And yeah, finally got there and <laughs> had, had an amazing time, some amazing photos and then an equally rough uh, walk back. But yeah. <clears throat> Uh, amazing, amazing city there for waterfalls. Anybody out there in uh, Hamilton area? Okay, so oh, I think you froze, Kendra. Oh no, you're. I saw you blink. You're just. <laughs> I'm alive. I promise. Yeah, you were just a, a very good actor. Uh, okay, so I'm going to start with this one. Boom. Can you explain this to me? Um. So I love street photography. I've been trying to shoot things that aren't people. Mm. Um because you know working in the corporate world and then working as a freelancer it's like all about the people it's about the people and what they're doing what they're sharing their milestone moments and sometimes i feel like taxed and let the creative things kind of slip um so i've been trying to do a bunch of like prism work um in shooting graffiti and murals and you know whatever i can find um and this uh was in halifax all the pictures that i chose um were like from the last couple of months, just as, you know, to show like a recent taste of kind of like what I'm working on right now. And every place that I go, I recently went to Iceland as well um, to, to grab some graffiti shots and whatnot. And I'm trying to capture kind of the art of the streets. Um, awesome. So you said you... Glamorization of kind of murals and street, um, mm -hmm. street art that, you know, I, I really like, I'm really attracted to like the dichotomy between like illegal art right. and you know positioning it basically sorry what were you uh, going to say what's i was going to say something entirely different <laughs> which i'll get to that but i was going to say you talked about street art and it's just reminding me like how street art it, it lasts for a little bit and then the, someone removes it or paint over it so it, it's impermanent yeah. and there's something magical about that about a moment that's only you know we capture a moment moment and as long as we keep the digital file it's there forever uh, but street art you paint a wall and if it's illegal street art you know, it might be there for a day a week a month uh if the business paid to have it there it might be there for years and then maybe some other street artist is going to come and cover up your work we don't know yeah so it's it that impermanence of it i think is something that's pretty special the temporary aspect of all street photography is what attracts me uh, mm. to it the most you know this is an instant of time that of course is never going to happen the same way again and yeah. you can suggest that for for any type of work of course but there is um, kind of a beauty in discovering those moments when you're doing street photography. You know, you're, you have no mission. You're not trying to complete a brief. You're not trying to produce specific content to attract or engage, you know, a specific type of audience. You're just, 
you know, letting your, your eye flow, you know, letting your heart, heart open and kind of like just explore and see what makes you tick. Uh, the, the question I was going to ask at the top of the photo here, uh, it's kind of like that prism effect. Now, is that an editing thing? Do you shoot through uh, prism? Like how do you achieve that? Or was that how the painting was? Um, so the painting itself is just like straight flat. Um, I think that for like ethical purposes, just taking straight photos of other people's art as an artist really doesn't like do anything. You know, so I like to like identify art and cool moments that I love, that I connect with. Um, and then I like to kind of see if I can like expand or elevate on their ideas at all. And I like to shoot through like prism lenses, either pieces of glass, actual physical lenses um, to do like in-camera effects. Um, so then the editing afterwards is just like a little bit of, you know, light room, um, just like contrast and exposure, you know, just adding a, adding a little bit of vibrance and sharpening, maybe a bit of grain, but I like to do all of the effects in camera. Nice. Awesome. All right. Next up, we have this guy. Um, so one of the cool projects in Hamilton <clears throat> is called um, Hamilton is Home. It's a great project. It's super famous. And it inspired me to start another little project called Hamilton is Hell. And there are so many homeless people um, struggling mm. in Hamilton. And the more street photography that I did hunting down art, you know, and finding those authentic candid moments between people, I really was surprised out of all the places that I've traveled, you know, nationally and internationally, Hamilton has like a huge homeless population that mm. is really really struggling and there is just simply not enough resources not enough people um, that are keeping, keeping this on their radar basically like enough a lot of projects to do with the homeless end up kind of accidentally glamorizing or, or glorifying things in some way um, so what i've been trying to do is capture various kind of pseudo residencies mm. that i discover and i'm keeping the people out of it i think that the people um, like I got the chance to talk to this guy who um, has like made this little alleyway his his home. It's like obviously the dead of winter. It's super cold. Um, and this guy has been uh, living here for more than six months. He has, Looks like, like he's got the, the cardboard out in the middle there. Kind of look, I guess that's where he sleeps. That's his bed. If you look a little further down to the back where the curtain is, there's actually like oh, a piece of like foam foamy? on yeah, the okay. ground with a blanket. Um, and I think the that's the kitchen area where the cardboard is. So okay. little bedrooms in the back where he can go behind that curtain and sleep on the floor. The mm. cardboard is um, his like prepping area. Um, you could see some like wrappers and, you know, other food and, and beverage things on the ground there um, when you were there in person. And then his belongings are in the green um, luggage there. Okay. Oh, okay. But the front here. And then at the very front, um, it didn't make it into this photo, but I have others. There's like a big canister that he uses basically as his bathroom. Okay. Um, so I am going around Hamilton, documenting as many of these as I can find. I found like 14 of them so far. Um, and I chose this one because it was the very first one um, that I shot. So it wasn't like the most technical photo or, you know, the, the most gorgeous photo, but it was what kind of like started me on this journey. And I'm not exactly sure what the final um, project will be like published or positioned in in some way but i know that i want to be able to you know take all of these little um these i'm calling them kind of like nests um of people and and use them to hopefully you know shine some 
light on um, on this problem that we're having and maybe try and get some funding or attention to go towards some good stuff in some way to help these people. One thing I will say about homeless people is that uh, if like if you want to learn how to survive, like how to be a survivalist, yeah, watch, spend some time with a homeless person, follow them around and, and yeah. see what they do because like it, it's it's just incredible, incredible how they survive and for, for many for such a long time, you know? Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. There's also a large um, drug epidemic in the Hamilton area that is, of course, also influ um, influencing a lot of um, homelessness and like transients in the city. And I don't want to be capturing this as like a like a big issue piece, you know, like the, right. the splash and the glamour aspect is like not what I'm wanting to like stir up at all with this. Yeah. Um, there was a time that I was considering, you know, taking portraits of people that might not have ever been like captured before, you know, and actually right. engaging intentionally like face to face with everyone. So yeah, I was mentioning the the portrait aspect of capturing the homeless. And then I was like, oh, maybe I can, you know, trade food or for the opportunity to, you know, interview these people and tell their story and kind of see what their kind of like a portrait of their life is like. And then the, as hard as I, I tried, I just like, I, I couldn't do it in a way that, you know, was respectful, um, basically of, of people's stories. And they're, a lot of these people want to be anonymous. And the mm -hmm. reason that they haven't had their photo taken isn't because they don't have access to someone with a camera, you know, mm -hmm. it's because they, they don't want to participate. Um, yeah. And I also don't want to be going around and uh, capturing people without their permission, especially vulnerable people like homeless people. Um, so that's why capturing the homes and the nests that they're making are, uh, are kind of more where I've landed with it. Awesome. All right, uh, we're going to skip ahead to uh, these next two. One of the, and these will these are kind of go together. So this is um, well, I don't need to tell the story. You tell the story. What is this? Um, so this is a patient that has to be moved in an emergency during the ICU, um, and during COVID, it was just insane. You know how everything was up another level in intensity and in protocol in teamwork, um, and. It's one of my favorite places to capture um, is in um, the emergency department in, in, in the ICU. Everything that you see is different. Everything is happening so fast. These are literally life and death moments. Mm. Um, and in this particular situation, there was a team of eight um, that was moving this guy. So it was, um, you know, time was tight, space was tight, um, and, you know, emotions and tensions were high. So it was, uh, it was a cool experience and a privilege to be able to even have access to this type of thing. Now, see, there's a lot of tubes and a lot of stuff going on there on the right of the photo. Um, but is that like, is this a big guy that they're dealing with here? Massive. Yeah. Very, very generous human being. Um, <laughs> the unfortunate part of, you know, you know, getting COVID for a lot of these people is that they had a lot of other underlying issues. Mm -hmm. um, so seeing the way that they were all being, you know, navigated in the hospital was one of the joys um, and interesting things of being able to capture kind of like the documentary stuff of what was going on at the time. Awesome. And here we have uh, another picture. I guess, is it, is this the same hospital actually? Yes. And just moments later. So those two oh, were wow. taken on the same day within like 20 okay. minutes of each other. Okay. Um, my shooting spot actually is the same. So just for picturing state sake, um, that room is to the left. Okay, so you're turning to the left, you're shooting, then you're yep, and turning then right, right and right down this hallway, and here yep. you are. 
Um, and what I love about these two different photos is that one really shows like the intensity of everything, right? Like it's crowded. There's so many people in there. They're obviously under many, many layers of protective gear. Um, and they're, they're trying to do their best to, to do what they need to do for mm -hmm. this patient's um, health. But then you see the other side of things in this photo, you know, where this nurse is obviously emotional, you know, that people are losing patients every day. There's not enough supplies. There's not enough support. There's not enough, you know, people to work with you, right? People are being consistently overworked. Um, and I really loved that you can see that in the moment in that in the heaviness of what this nurse, um, nurse is dealing with. Yeah. Amazing. There was many times, you know, where people were crying, <clears throat> having breakdowns, um, you know, privately and then having to, to come back and, you know, of course, you know, try and do their job and be the best healthcare professionals they can be. So. Yeah. The last, uh, last few years has been, uh, <clears throat> quite a, uh, I guess this is for YouTube, so I'm going to try not to swear so I don't get demonetized. <laughs> we'll just call it a cluster. It's been a cluster yeah. for sure. <laughs> awesome. But hopefully everyone's coming out stronger. You know, we're. I think that pivoting was like the biggest overused word of um, of the pandemic, but it's good to see that so many people are, you know, fighting to, to reestablish themselves, to continue to work, to be successful, all that kind of stuff. Those who adapt survive. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. All right, Kendra, uh, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate that. Uh, where, where can people, I mean, we have the little ticker going across the bottom of the screen, but where, is there any other places that people can find you, get a hold of you? Um, for my website, Instagram, social media, any of that kind of stuff. I, uh, I'm on the interwebs and I always love connecting um, and collaborating with people. So uh, yeah, please, um, anyone uh, reach out, let's chat. Kendra Piros, thank you so much for being my guest today and uh, you have a wonderful day. Oh, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time with you. Congratulations on uh, this uh, wonderful event. I can't see, can't wait to see where it goes. Cheers.